This podcast is brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. Thanks for listening. Okay, good morning, everyone. It's really good to see all of you here today. Uh, especially for those of you who went to church camp, uh, very commendable that you're all here early again on Sunday morning. Okay, so let's go to God in prayer. Uh, dear Father, as we come before you today, we pray that we will solemnly and seriously look at Jesus as he goes to the cross. We pray that we will feel and uh, take to heart the suffering of Jesus on our behalf. And as we leave here today, to be able to value it more, and to treasure it more, and to realize that He did it for us. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Now the person who God sent to save me in Christ was a pastor in Australia called Joshua Ng. I'm sure many of you know Joshua because he has come and preached at our church camp before. And he read the Bible with me. And uh, I got to know him really well, and we still keep in touch even to today. So his wife, uh, Joshua, uh, his wife was uh, Karen, and she's actually Jewish. She came from Hungary, she went to Australia, and some of the relatives came with her. So Joshua was telling us one day that uh, one of uh, the relatives died and uh, gave them some things. So together with those things was this old... Tattered, raggedy, okay, it's not this lah, okay. This is just, I googled it from the net, right? But it was, there was this old, raggedy, tattered, old carpet. And, uh, you know, they got this stuff and they got this carpet and they, they put it down. They thought, oh, this looks so old, you know, it doesn't fit off new furniture. So they took it and they put it in the garage. But after a while, the garage started getting full, you know, you start putting things to your garage as you do. And uh, they were running out of space, so they thought, ah, why don't we just throw out this old carpet, you know, because we don't use it, and it doesn't look very valuable, it's just old, tattered, you know, it's so big anyway. So Joshua took it out of his garage and he put it, because you know in Australia what they do is they put it uh, outside next to the road in front of the garbage bin. And as he was doing it, this man drove past and he said, oh, what are you doing with that old piece of carpet? And Joshua said, oh, you know, we're getting rid of it because we don't, we don't really want it. So the man said, oh, you don't want it? Uh, can I take it from you? And Joshua said, sure. He says, okay, just hold on a second. I'll, I'll go around the corner. I'll get my truck. I'll come and pick it up. So the man goes, gets his truck, comes back, takes the old raggedy carpet and puts it in his truck and drives off. So they think nothing of it. I think a couple of months go by and they happen to go in a, sh- in, a, in a shopping mall they haven't been to before and they saw a carpet shop. And then they, they saw a carpet which looked very much like that large, raggedy old carpet that they had before. So they thought, well, you know, why don't we just go in there and find out how much this carpet really costs. So they went in and actually they found out it was around this price or so, right? It was about $3,000 Australian. And they were really shocked because... It was actually the most expensive thing that this relative had left them. It was an old Persian carpet, right? It was like hand-woven things. And apparently these things are very valuable and can last a very long time. And uh, it was very shocking for the family that uh, they had this 
all this while sitting in their garage and you know they were going to throw it out. But if, to them it was trash, but actually to this man who was walking past, it was like treasure, right? And I think that uh, for us, we can sort of treat Jesus this way. We, we undervalue Jesus, we underappreciate Jesus, we underprice Jesus. And I'm not talking about non-Christians here, right? Because obviously non-Christians undervalue, underprice, and underestimate Jesus because if not, they would actually be Christians, right? But I'm, I'm talking about Christians themselves. We ourselves can undervalue, underprice, and underestimate Jesus. We can treat Jesus like that Persian carpet. But the way that we actually go some way to remedying that problem that we have and to get a true estimation of Jesus and what he has done for us is to read the Gospels. And we've been reading through the book of Matthew so far. And as we come to the suffering of Jesus, as we walk the steps of Jesus, and we see that he's actually been uh, suffering for us, then we really value Jesus even more. So verse 31 begins by saying, Then Jesus told them, This very night you will all fall away on account of me. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. Now, the passage begins with the word then. And I think it begins with the word then here because it links back to what we were studying in the previous week where Jesus was together with disciples in the Passover, eating the Passover meal. And he had told them that he would die on the cross. And remember last week, we learned that he would die on the cross because he was the suffering servant. He was the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecy that there would be this suffering servant who would suffer and serve people by dying and forgiving their sins. He would go to the cross because he was a fulfillment of the Passover lamb. He would be the one who would be sacrificed so that God's judgment would pass over people. And he would also die on the cross because his blood, his violent death, would inaugurate a new contract of forgiveness of sins with people. Now all these things uh, took place in the privacy of uh, their upper meal, right? Uh, the, the, the warmth of the fellowship and friendship, the security of closed doors. But in verse 31, Jesus says that very soon, this intimacy and closeness would be replaced by disloyalty and cowardice. Because not just one, but all of the disciples would fall away from Jesus in just a few short hours, every one of them would leave Jesus. He quotes a passage from the book of Zechariah, written many, many hundreds of years before, where he says, the shepherd will be struck and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. And he doesn't just mean scattered as they will run away, but he means scattered as in terms of losing faith in Jesus. They will, they will disbelieve Jesus. They will no longer put their trust in Jesus. They will no longer stand together with Jesus. And this is a fulfillment, as we've seen, of the suffering servant, right? So because, if you look at this passage, the description of the suffering servant, uh, the next slide, Yonket, 
is that he would be despised and rejected by men. He would, people would hide their faces from Jesus. Now, I don't know if anybody has ever hidden their face from you, but the expression to hide your face is one where you no longer want to be known as having a relationship with someone. So I remember when I was young, I had a friend of mine, uh, I, I won't name this friend now, right? but he was a friend of mine, but then as we got older, right, he started hanging out with the, with the cool kids. But you know, I wasn't cool enough for him. Lah. So he's hanging out with the cool kids. So I remember once he was hanging out with his cool friends and uh, I happened to bump into him, but he hid his face from me, right? Because I wasn't cool and uh, he didn't want to be known as having uncool friends, right? Okay? So he hid his face from me because he, he didn't want to acknowledge me as his friend. Now, in this passage, this is what's going to happen to Jesus, right? It's, it's like he's saying in a few hours' time, the disciples who have been walking with him all these years and seen his miracles, they understand who Jesus is, they've acknowledged Jesus to be the Christ. They will scatter and they will hide their face from Jesus. They will never acknowledge him as Jesus, Rabbi, Teacher, Christ, Messiah. Because outside of this intimate fellowship of the Passover meal, they will feel the wrath and the pressure and the persecution of this world, and they will turn away from Jesus. Now, Peter uh, very valiantly says, Even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. Truly I tell you, Jesus answered, This very night before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. But Peter declared, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the other disciples said the same. Now, we don't know whether Peter's reaction and the other uh, disciples' reaction came from true conviction or whether it was just face, right? You know, it's like, like you know, you're like insulting my, my, my loyalty to you. I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stand by you through thick and thin. But Jesus knows the far, far future, but he also knows what's going to happen in a few hours' time. And he says to them that all of them will fall away, including Peter, who so strongly asserts that he will stand with Jesus even if he has to die. But Jesus says within the short time before the rooster crows, right? So according to in, in the ancient world, Right, the rooster crows at different times of the day, but the last time the rooster crows is like 3 a.m. Right, So by 3 a.m., so they're having dinner now. So within a few short hours, six hours maybe, Jesus knows that all the disciples will abandon him. Now, I think the reason why we are given this account is to see that Jesus dies alone. Right, He goes to his death right, deserted, by all his closest disciples. It is not enough that they've walked with Jesus, seen his miracles, heard his preaching, acknowledged him as Christ, they will still desert him. So I know that, uh, you know, uh, some of us, including the church camp commander, but he's not here, maybe he's resting from struggling after putting together the church camp, right? He's really into Liverpool, right? So since he's not here, we can talk bad things about Liverpool, right? But, 
you know, the, the motto of Liverpool is, we, you know, you will never walk alone, right? So in a sense, it's a very, it's a very nice thing, right? You know, even when Liverpool loses, they're not alone, right? Okay? So it's like, you know, but the thing is, the point is, it's good to be able to, to, to have companionship, to support, to have friends, even in times where there is defeat and loss. But Jesus here, when he goes to his death, is all by himself. Everyone is hiding their faces from Jesus. There is no one who acknowledges him. No one who is willing to stand by him. The passage then goes on in verse 36. When Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane, he said to them, Sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Now if you notice, Jesus is not... Uh, you know, one of those people who goes to Oprah Winfrey and you know, he spills out how he's feeling... You know, like, I'm feeling very sad, I'm feeling very inadequate, I'm feeling very down. It's very rare, you know, when you read the Gospels, you rarely read about what Jesus is feeling. But here, in the hours before his death, Jesus actually reveals to his disciples what he's really feeling. Right? So it's almost like the, 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 the front of, uh, you know, that calm is sort of momentarily open so that, so that, we, Christians many thousands of years later, and, and the disciples can see what he really feels. And he says he feels deep grief, right? He's sorrowful. He's, he's, he's suffering deep distress. He's troubled. In fact, he says his soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. He's not saying that he's dying. He's saying that he is so sad that he feels as if sorrow is overwhelming him to the point of death. Now, the only time that I've ever seen people with that sort of sorrow, uh, or maybe even felt it myself, is when you go to uh, a funeral. You know, it's like, um, I've been to a few funerals, and if you ever go to the crematorium, you know how after the funeral service, everybody's invited to the viewing gallery where they see the coffin you know, slowly trundling along the wheels, and you see the, the coffin going into the, the, uh, the fire, right? Actually, I don't think they show that anymore. The, the most recent one, I think they, they felt it was too traumatic for people, right? But I, I, it, 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 is, it is the point where people really break down, right? That sorrow. I, I remember I went to one funeral, and this uh, one of the relatives, he, he stopped breathing, Right, he's like he was just—he was so overwhelmed with sorrow. He stopped breathing, and all the relatives were saying, "Breathe, breathe!" Right, and I think that's the sorrow that Jesus is feeling. That's what he feels when he goes to the cross. But that sorrow that he feels is not because he fears death. Right? It's not because he fears crucifixion, even though crucifixion was the worst suffering that the Romans could inflict on you. Why he felt that sorrow was because 
of what the cross meant. Because in verse 39 he says, My Father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Now I want us to notice very carefully that what Jesus wants God to take away is not death. He didn't say, Dear Father, take this death away from me. He didn't say, Dear Father, take this crucifixion away from me. But he says, take this cup away from me. Now, the reason why Jesus says, take this cup away from me, is because that is what the cross represents. It is the cup of God's judgment and wrath upon him. Because in the Old Testament, the cup symbolizes God's judgment upon people. So in Isaiah 51 it says, Awake, awake, rise up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, you who have drained, drained to his dregs the goblet that makes men stagger. And in Psalm 75, But it is God who judges. He brings one down, he exalts another. In the hand of the Lord is a cup full of foaming wine mixed with spices. He pours it out, and all the wicked of the earth drink it down to its dregs. Now I think we need to fix in our mind that that is what Jesus fears, and that is what the cross represents. The cross is the cup of God's wrath. I think the, the problem for us, uh, including myself, is that we see only the visual, right? We only see the visual. We're visual people. So when we watch movies, we see documentaries, we see photographs, when we think of Jesus on the cross, we just think that Jesus suffered physically. Jesus just suffered physically. But, but that's not what Jesus fears. It is not the physical suffering that Jesus fears. So, many, many years ago, you know, uh, Mel Gibson made this movie called The Passion of Christ. Right? Uh, it's not very well known nowadays. But he, he focused a lot on Jesus on the cross and if you remember the movie, actually it was very bloody, right? It was all focused on Jesus' physical suffering. But Jesus' deep distress, Jesus' deep grief and sorrow to the point of death, comes not so much because of the physical suffering, but because at the cross, he will drink the cup of God's wrath. And when he drinks the cup of God's wrath, for the first time in history, God and Son, their relationship will be broken. Right? The relationship between God and Son will be broken for the first time. For the first time, Jesus, who has always been sinless before God, will feel sin in his body because he takes on the sin of this world. For the first time, Jesus, who has only felt the Father's love, will feel the Father's wrath. And that's why Jesus, if you notice right, 
in the whole of the Gospels has never ever asked God to change his mind. You, you notice that? Jesus never asked God to change his mind about anything. But here, he says to God three times, right? If it is possible, if it is possible, take this cup away from me, right? If it is possible, take this cup away from me. But God doesn't change his mind, right? And Jesus, if you notice, is always willing to do God's will. Because three times he says, take this cup away from me, but not my will, but your will. And we thank God that Jesus is such an obedient son. Because, I don't know about you, but if I was in Jesus' shoes, right, and I suffered this deep distress, deep grief, sorrow up to the point of death, most likely, I would not want to go and drink the cup of God's wrath. But Jesus did it because he was obedient to God's will. He did it for us. He did it for our sins. But at the end of the day, even though God didn't answer his prayers, God strengthened him. Because at the end of the passage, Jesus says, Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. Right? Jesus willingly, voluntarily and deliberately walks towards his betrayers in order to go to the cross. Now, in verse 47 onwards, while he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, arrived, and with him was a large crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now, the betrayer had arranged a signal with them, the one I kiss is the man, arrest him. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. Now, now we know what uh, Judas was paid for, right? The 30 silver pieces. Because in uh, the first part of uh, this section, in chapter 26, remember, it said that the chief priests and the, the Pharisees, oh, sorry, the elders, they were looking for some sly way to arrest Jesus without creating a riot among the people. And Judas was willing to deliver Jesus up with that information where the uh, chief priests and uh, the leaders could arrest Jesus where he was away from the crowds. Now, the Garden of Gethsemane, if you look at this map, right, the next slide, uh, was actually outside, uh, if you can see, the city itself. So it was a quiet place, it was away from where all the pilgrims were staying in the city. And by doing uh, so, they could arrest Jesus without creating a disturbance among the many, many people within the city. So, uh, the next slide. So this is the Garden of, I mean, this is the Mount of Olives, right? So this is the side which is facing Jerusalem. So you can see, you know, even though today there's buildings and stuff, but it's still a pretty quiet place, right? So here, Jesus walks and meets his betrayer. Jesus walks and meets 
the, the large crowd of uh, soldiers who have come to arrest Jesus, and he willingly goes to, Jesus, uh, to, to Judas to be betrayed. But while he's doing so, one of the people, many people presume it's Peter, right, reaches a sword and cuts uh, the ear of one of the, uh, the soldiers. And another one of the gospel accounts, Jesus actually you know, puts the ear back and heals uh, the, the soldier's ear. But you notice what Jesus says in verse 15, right? Uh, sorry, in, uh, sorry, in this passage, in, um, in verse 15, he actually says about how powerful he is, but in verse 53, he says, Do you think I cannot call on my father, for he will at once put at my disposal more than twelve legions of angels? But how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen in this way? Now, it's amazing, right? Because... If you think about it, if you look at 2 Samuel, this passage I have up here, one angel can wreak havoc and death and destruction. Okay, so Jesus says that God has given him 12 legions of angels. Okay, so 12 legions, the next slide. So one legion is about 3,000 to 6,000 soldiers. So 12 times 3 or 6 is like, 36 to 72,000 angels, right? So, if one angel is so destructive, can you imagine what 36 to 72,000 angels can, can do, right? So, Jesus is saying that he has immense power at his finger, fingertips, right? So, this large group of soldiers which have come to arrest Jesus, they don't really have any power over Jesus. Jesus has overwhelming power at his fingertips. He can destroy them. With just, you know, one word. But yet Jesus willingly gives himself over in order to be arrested and to be betrayed. And the reason is because of what he has already said. He is the suffering servant. He is the Passover lamb. And he willingly gives himself up in order to be betrayed and to be arrested. Now, the most shocking part of this account is actually what happens after he's arrested. In verse 57, it says, Those who had arrested Jesus took him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the teachers of the law and the elders had assembled. But Peter followed him at a distance, right up to the courtyard of the high priest. He entered and sat down with the guards to see the outcome. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for false evidence against Jesus, so they could put him to death. But they could not find any, though many false witnesses came forward. Finally, two came forward and declared, This fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. Then the high priest stood up and said to Jesus, Are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent. The high priest said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. You have said so, Jesus replied. But I say to all of you, from now on you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. 
Then the high priest tore his clothes and said, He has spoken blasphemy. Why do we need any more witnesses? Look, now you have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? He is worthy of death, he answered. Then they spit in his face and they struck him with their fists. Others slapped him and said, Prophesy to us, Messiah, who hit you? Now the Sanhedrin was made up of God's uh, religious leaders, right? They were like the, the, the leaders of the Jewish community. And they were meant to be the most holy, the most wise, the most righteous of all of God's people, right? They were like the priests, the chief priests, the religious leaders, the elders of the people. But what we see is actually the leaders of God's people are not the most holy, but the most wicked. Not the most righteous, but the most wrong, right? the most evil and sinful. Because, according to the rules of that day, if you wanted to charge someone with a capital crime and wanted him to be punished, there were rules. right? So the first rule was that they were meant to do things in an open way. But we already know that they're very sly, right? So the religious leaders were acting in a very shady manner. But we see here how shady they really are. Because the first thing is, according to the rules of that day, if you were going to be charged with a capital crime, you had to be brought to the temple. Uh, so the next slide. So he was brought not to the temple but to the palace of the high priest. The second thing is, they were forbidden to have night trials. Okay, you can't have a trial at night because it's like, you need to have a trial apparently over at least two consecutive days. And lastly, the defendant had to have legal representation. But if you notice here, Jesus is not at the temple, he is at the palace. Uh, you look around, you see, hey, this is night time, right? And it's not over two consecutive days. And where is Jesus' legal counsel? There's no legal counsel for Jesus. But there is worse, right? Because it says here that the Sanhedrin brought forward many false witnesses who gave false evidence against Jesus. Now the law for which the Sanhedrin was meant to uphold said that people were not meant to give false witness and false evidence against people. But more than that, in Deuteronomy chapter 19, the priests and the judges of the time, if they found people who gave false witness and false evidence, then they were to do to these witnesses what the, the, these witnesses intended to do against the defendants. But you notice here that actually the judges themselves were the ones giving and instigating the false witnesses, instigating the false evidences, rather than stopping people from giving false evidence themselves. They came up with this charge against Jesus that Jesus was said to have going to be destroying the temple. But we know from another gospel in the book of John that actually Jesus was talking about his own body, not the temple of Jerusalem. But they were not interested in the truth. 
Because when they asked Jesus to answer truthfully, Jesus answered truthfully and said, Yes, I am the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And if you see here, in verse 64, he describes exactly what sort of Messiah he will be. From now on, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One, coming on the clouds of heaven. The fulfillment of Daniel chapter 7, which we read in the responsive reading. So they asked Jesus, under oath, to speak the truth. Jesus speaks the truth under oath. He is the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of God, in the fulfillment of Daniel 7. But instead of listening to the truth of Jesus, they frame Jesus, and they accuse Him of blasphemy, and then, what do they do? They spit on Him. They hit Him on the head. They punch Him. They slap Him around. They blindfold Him, and they ask Him to prophesy who struck Him. Now, you imagine if a court in Singapore did that, right? Imagine, you know, Somebody went to court in Singapore and then after the judge declares the person guilty, uh, the prosecution and uh, you know, the witnesses and the judge start spitting on the defendant, punching the defendant, blindfolding the defendant and hitting him. We will say there's a, there's a miscarriage of justice here. And that's exactly what we're meant to see when we read this passage, that, that Jesus, an innocent person, is actually treated most wickedly by the religious leadership of Israel. He is an innocent man who is mocked, humiliated, struck and punched. Now, many people feel very uncomfortable with this passage. We don't feel it because you know, we're in Singapore. But if you were in the West, right, when people read this passage, people say that, oh, you know, these, these sort of passages which lead to you know, Hitler killing all the Jews, right? Because you know, it's like all these Jewish people who killed Messiah Jesus. Uh, but that doesn't make sense because Jesus himself was Jewish and the disciples themselves are Jews, right? But I think that at, an, at another level, when you consider it, actually Jesus experienced all these things not because of the Jewish leaders, but because of us, right? He walked this path of being alone. He walked this path of being betrayed. He walked this path of being falsely accused and struck and spat on and uh, slapped because of my sin, because of your sin. He's only following this path because we together are sinful. And that's why he's journeying on this path. So it's very important for us to understand that Jesus is suffering because he is willingly doing God's will to pay for our sins. Now the story then ends with Peter's denial of Jesus. And it's an altogether very tragic picture of Peter, right? No, Peter, the lead disciple. Peter, the one who swore so strongly, I will never desert you. Because Peter, you can see his tragic fall. So first of all, there is a servant girl who says to Peter, Hey, surely you were with Jesus. Now, in those days, right, the servant girl 
is like a very low rung of society, right? You know, he's, he, you know, he's not being accused by someone who's a policeman. He's just accused by a servant girl. Maybe a teenager even. But Peter says, no, I never knew that person. I never knew Jesus. He hides his face from Jesus. And then another girl. We don't know whether she's a servant girl. It's another servant girl. Yes, we do. Another servant girl comes to Jesus and says, this fellow was with Jesus of Nazareth. And this time, Jesus is denied with an oath. Peter says, I swear on something. I never knew Jesus. And then lastly, he walks, you know, basically he's in the courtyard, right? So he's trying to escape all these people, making all these accusations. And finally, other people say, surely you are with Jesus. Your accent is Galilean, like Jesus. And Peter starts calling down curses on himself. He makes more and more oaths. And he says, I never, never, never knew Jesus. I don't know the man. And by the very end, uh, Jesus is all alone. Uh, We know from other Gospels that uh, Jesus looks at Peter at this time and, uh, and Jesus, you know, sort of, we don't know how Jesus looks at Peter. Maybe he was being escorted to the courtyard or whatever. He looks at Jesus. Jesus looks at Peter. And uh, there's acknowledgement, right? That, that yeah, Peter, you have, you, you have denied me, just as I said that you would. And the rooster then crows, and Peter wept bitterly. Now, I think that as we are told of these events of the night before Jesus died on the cross, we are meant to see the, the loneliness of Jesus, the, the betrayal of Jesus, the abandonment of Jesus, the humiliation of Jesus as an innocent man on our behalf, uh, the mockery of Jesus, uh, Jesus being struck on the face, Jesus being blindfolded and hit about. And I think as we read this passage, we must treasure and value what Jesus did even more. Because he's going this path, he's walking these steps because of you and because of me. Because of the sin that you did last week or because of the lustful thought that you know, we had in our heart or the hate that we experienced or the angry words we said to someone recently, or the jealousy that we felt. That's what makes Jesus walk this path. I remember a Christian once said to me, actually it wasn't a Christian, I'm not sure it was a Christian, maybe I was trying to evangelize someone, and he said, oh yeah, what's the big deal about Jesus dying on the cross? He just slept for three days, right? Um, but no, he didn't just go and sleep for three days, you know. You know, he, 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 he drank the cup of God's wrath. He was separated from God, he he was innocent, but he felt sin. He you know, the weight of the sin of the world was upon him. He was always loved by God, and he felt God's wrath. He he was a innocent man who was humiliated and mocked and kept silent because of what we did. So, in conclusion, you know when you go to a, a funeral, right? Uh, often. You come across people, especially relatives and friends, who are really grieving. Like, you know, their, their tears running down their face. 
if you go to the cremation, they may be sobbing and crying. There is deep grief in their heart. And often when you go to these funerals, you, you struggle to find words to say to comfort them. Uh, you, you want in some way to relieve them of their suffering. I mean, I do. I don't know whether you, you know, if you've ever been to these things, you, you just wish you could say something which makes their suffering a bit less. Right? And in, in the same way, when I read this passage, I, I, I sort of think, you know, if, if only there was some way that we could make Jesus' suffering a bit less, right? But the reality is actually, we can't make his suffering less, right? Because he has to experience all this suffering in order to pay for our sins. You know, on one hand, we want to make Jesus' suffering less, but on the other hand, selfishly, we know that if Jesus chose to make his suffering less, we wouldn't be forgiven of our sins. But, but that is the depth of Jesus' obedience to God. That is the depth of God's grace towards us. Right? That, that he makes Jesus walk this path of great suffering to pay for our sins. And as we read and realize the depth of suffering that Jesus went through, then all the more we need to appreciate the cross and to treasure it and to value it. Because this is what Jesus chose to go through because of our sins. To pay for the wrongs and the transgressions and the iniquities that we've done against God. So I hope that as we just read this section, we will leave here with a greater appreciation of what Jesus did. A greater thankfulness and gratefulness for what Jesus has done for us. Let's go to God in prayer. Dear Father, as we come before you today, help us to see that Jesus was all alone that night when he was arrested and when he was humiliated, how he was innocent in every way but yet suffered great indignity and mocking, that he was struck on the face, spat in the face, and that, dear Father, what he really feared was not just the physical suffering of the worst torture that the Romans could conceive, the crucifixion, but what he felt great sorrow and deep grief over was the cup of wrath. That he knew that on the very next day he would go to the cross and drink the cup of the wrath of millions of people. That by doing so, he would for the first time experience sin coming into his holiness. That he would experience wrath instead of love. And that his relationship with you for the first time in eternity would be broken. And so, dear Father, we pray for ourselves that all the more we would appreciate the journey that Jesus took to the cross for us the steps that he went through in order to pay for our sins and to treasure the cross of Jesus Christ because he suffered so much on our behalf. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.
Thanks for listening to this podcast brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at bcpc.sg.